0: Bless you. All right, you ready? What did we talk about last week? Is a quiz. It's more a judgment on me than you, but what did we talk about last week? Jesus, that's usually a very good answer. <laughs> that is funny. Uh, yes, we, <laughs> yes, we did. Uh, what else, though? What was the whole point? Okay, I heard some things. Uh, remember we talked about deny yourself. Deny yourself. How about two weeks ago? <laughs> wow. Okay, you know they do say that as a teacher. Tests are really sometimes just about the teacher. But two weeks ago we talked about sin. So let me let, let's do this. And I know some of you are joining us online, and I really appreciate it. I'm glad you were here. And not everybody was here the last two weeks. I get that. But here's what we're doing. As a church, I feel so passionate. I know God is bringing in a harvest. Now, I've been a Christian all my life. I've been in full time ministry now. Oh my goodness, long time—thirty-six years, maybe. No, more than that. Uh, Anyway, that happens when you get old, right? (laughs) I have never felt like I do now about the harvest. I've always valued the harvest, always tried to share my faith, always taught young people to share their faith, always preached that that was a value. But there's something about this time we live in. I feel like that is it. And as a pastor, the, Ephesians 4 is clear. My job is to equip you for works of service. Not only can't I do it all, I couldn't. I'm not supposed to. You are. We are. We, we we say that Missouri, right? we Weans, all y'all. I like all y'all. It's like all y'all. We, we are supposed to do this, and it's, it's my job to equip you to do that. And as part of that, I really feel like, I, I feel like we need to be prepared. Number one, grounded in our own faith. Know why we believe what we believe. Uh, Aristotle said the, the unexamined life is not worth living. I believe the unexamined faith isn't really faith. If you only believe to a certain degree, it's not really faith. Uh, I'm sure you've all heard of this, but years ago in the 1800s, there was a guy named Charles Blondine. I should have shown you pictures. Anybody ever heard of him? I know some of you are like, I'm not that old. I know. But he was a tightrope walker. He was pretty famous, and he was French, but he came over to the U.S., and he strung a rope across the Niagara Falls, which I don't know if you've been there or not, I've never been there. I've just seen the pictures. But it's amazing. So then what he did is he started to uh, draw a crowd. Now, he was doing it for money. You know, this is during the years of vaudeville and that kind of thing. And so he's drawing a crowd. Come see this crazy man who's going to walk across the falls. So he did. He walked across a number of times. You know, he had the big pole to balance and all that. So he went back and forth. So he had crowds on both sides, on the Canadian side, on the U.S. side. He went back back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. The crowd's growing, growing, growing. So then he started doing crazy things. Ultimately, he actually took a stove out there and cooked breakfast on the tightrope. Isn't that crazy? So then he'd gone back and forth and done these stunts so many times. He got to one end and he got to the crowd. The whole crowd's out there. They're cheering for him. And he says, who thinks I can walk across with someone on my back? And they're all like, yeah, yes, yes, you can. He goes, who will be first? And they all put their hands back down. You know how it is. Remember when you're in school, you guys know how this is, when the teacher's asking questions and you do not want to be called on? What's, what do you do? you go, hmm. you, don't look, you don't make eye contact, right? So did they believe he could do it? Did they really believe he could do it? No. If they really believed it, they would actually commit to being part of it and jump on his back. In the end, it's kind of a comical story because his promoter had to jump on his back. His promoter, and I don't know how it went down, I imagine it went down like this, like Blondine is like, all right, I guess you're up, and the promoter's like, no, 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 I'm the promoter, you know, you need me to promote you, and he's like, well, this is going to be the biggest promotion of all, so he did get on his back, and there's, there's literal photographs of this guy walking across with the promoter, and I've thought about this, if you look at the pictures, Blondine's not like super young guy, he's in his 30s, 40s, obviously well-built, but he'd already been back and, forth, back and forth a number of times. He'd done all those stunts. And then he's carrying a man on his back walking across. Pretty amazing. Then later, he does get people in the crowd to participate. And there's a picture of him wheeling a lady across in a wheelbarrow. Did she believe? Yes, she did. That's what we're talking about with this. I know that you all believe in Jesus, you're here, you're at church. But if you believe to the point of saying, all right, I'm going to take this on and do something with it. (laughs) Christians are weird, aren't they? Aren't we weird a little bit? Do you ever feel like that? Do you feel like you're crazy sometimes? Well, you're in good company, actually. There's a a book I read recently, and I recommend it to all y'all. All 'all. (laughs) Uh, Ewan's. Uh, it is called Faithfully Different by uh, Na- Natasha Crane. She's written some other books, but that, this book just came out like last year. It was amazing. And what she's talking about in there is she's she's defining and illustrating kind of the change in our culture. And what she did is she she lined it up these four things. She says our culture today says that feelings are the ultimate guide. Think about that for a second. Not truth. Not standard. Not commitments, not things you've said you would do, but feelings. How I feel in the moment. How many of you are married in here? How many of you always feel excited about that? How come your hands aren't up? Oh, y'all should put your hands back up. (laughs) Wow. Mm. (laughs) Wow. And next week we'll be doing a marriage seminar in here on... (laughs) (laughs) Actually, that's a good illustration, though. You don't feel it every moment. I don't, I don't, I'm not faithful to my wife because I have a ring on my finger. I'm faithful because I made a commitment and I, my love compels me to do that. Do you see the difference? It can't be just feelings because feelings change. You know how unreliable they are. But the second thing they say is that happiness is the ultimate goal, which is tied directly to my feelings. And if something I'm involved in does or doesn't make me happy in the moment, or something somebody else does, then I'm gonna search for happiness. It's like we're on a happiness quest, not a truth quest. Have any of you hiked like a in the mountains ever? You ever had that experience where you're hiking? If you've never hiked before, it's one of those things when you start off, it's exciting. And you can't wait to get where you're going. But honestly, after a while, no matter who you are, you're like, when are we going to get there? You are automatically that child that was in your car and says, are we there yet? And then you keep thinking around the next turn, we're going to be there. And then you get there and you're like, my goodness, there's like 20 more turns. Or worse, you get to a peak in the hill or in the mountain trail and you're like, I know that's it. And then you get there and "Mm -mm." it's like mountain after mountain. What if life is really like that? And at any one of those points, you could look at yourself and say, I'm not feeling this anymore. I just want to go back. Here's the thing about hiking. You have to hike back. You ever notice that? Also, not every moment makes you happy. But if that's going to be your guide and that's going to be your goal, then life is going to be difficult. And then judging is the ultimate sin. In other words... If you judge what I'm feeling today or my behavior based on me acquiring happiness for me, then you're wrong to do that because judging is the ultimate sin. And then and then, we're not going to really talk about this today, but God is the ultimate guess that no one can know for sure. Here's the thing. When you read these statements, I'm curious, what is your ultimate guide and what is your ultimate goal? Paul in Romans 12 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will know what God's good and perfect will is for your life. It's not really a whole lot different today than 2,000 years ago. Christianity's always been weird. Can you evaluate your goal or guide without judging? This is where it kind of gets contradictory. I mean, if you're saying that um, we can't judge because judging is ultimate sin, isn't that a judgment? Have you ever thought about that? Don't think about it too much. Just Let me just say this, though. In today's world, if you're going to follow Jesus rather than your feelings, you're kind of crazy. You sound kind of crazy. If you realize that your sin is serious, and you're sorry for it, rather than celebrating it, you're crazy. You're going to look kind of crazy in this world today. If you look for your happiness in Christ, and in service, and denying yourself, that's really crazy in this world. Did you know that the Apostle Paul said the same thing? When I read this verse this week, I laughed out loud. Listen to this. If it seems we are crazy it is to bring glory to God. And if we are in our right minds, it is for your benefit. If it seems that we're crazy, it's to bring glory to God. And if we're in our right minds, it is to your benefit. Now, Paul is writing this to the church in Corinth. We're pretty sure that there were, because he mentions these other letters, we think there were at least four letters he wrote to, to Corinth, to the church. We, what we call First and Second Corinthians are two of those letters. We don't have the other two. In those letters, he's describing and talking to the church. So you might ask, what is he talking about? What's What's he talking about this crazy, crazy life? Let's look at it. In verse 14, he says, either way, Christ's love compels us. Compels us. Some versions say drives us. Others say motivates us or urges us onward. What he's saying is, if I look crazy, it's because Christ's love compels me to be crazy. Because you're just not crazy on your own. Some people are crazy. I get it. You know some crazy people. We've all got that family member who's crazy. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the choices that we make as Christians and the way we live as Christians that in a world that we live in today look crazy. How? Why? It's because Christ's love compels us. His love drives us crazy. And you look crazy because you are driven by Christ's love. So what is he talking about? It's interesting because if you study like scripture enough, you will notice that there are certain words that are used different times. And one of the beautiful things about God choosing to reveal himself in the New Testament at the time that Greek was the language of the land is because Greek is a very specific language. It has a lot more specificity, specificity than English. In English, you know how it is, and if you're not a native speaker, you will know this, but In English, we have so many words that are that maybe sound the same. We call them homophones. You've heard of those, right? Bear, 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 and they're all different bears. One's fuzzy, one's putting up with the fuzzy bear, and right? You guys know what I'm talking about. English is difficult that way. Greek, not so much. It's very specific. So when Paul says Christ's love compels us, that word "compels" is only used by him one other place in the entire all of his writings. Paul wrote more books in the New Testament than anybody else. And he only uses that word one other time, and it's in Philippians. And where he's talking about Philippians, he is basically telling them, I'm about to pass on from this life to the next. And what he says is, he says, I am hard-pressed. I am compelled between the two. He's basically saying, I would like to go see Jesus, but I feel compelled to stay to share more knowledge with you and to plant more churches, and to do more work for Jesus. But I'm feeling this tug in my spirit. God compels me. Jesus compels me. The picture here isn't just... I mean, we know what compulsion is, right? Someone's compelled, they're pushed, they're driven. This is not like a drill sergeant pushing soldiers to march farther. That's not it. It's a different word. What this word is like, it's, it's, a, it's a pressure... Between two alternatives is a pressure that's applied, not to control, but to cause action, to motivate. It's an internal motivation. We all know the difference between external and and internal motivation, right? Yes? How many of you were good students? (laughs) I love this. It's like maybe 10% of us. Okay. Why? Why did you study? Did you want to study? When I went to, when I went to when I transferred to Bible college, it was a it was different experience because I had been in a secular university. So when I went to a college where, first of all, in, in the secular university, a lot of times you would have class with, you know, two, three hundred students. Uh, the professor would hardly ever be there. It would be his teaching assistant, you know, so the actual guy that's on your grade wouldn't be, you never even saw him. Then when I went to Bible college, we had earned doctorates in a room with 15, 20 people. They knew your name. They prayed for you by name. That created in me, partly, an internal motivation. I wanted to know this stuff. Plus, I felt like, any of you have been to school and you had to take general ed that didn't matter? Anybody do that? You had a class, you had to pick these classes, and you're like, you're just not as motivated because it doesn't apply to what you want to do in your life. It's, It's different. But I do remember this. You know, one of the classes I had to take was Greek. And I wanted to take Greek, but it's really hard it's a lot of work. I mean, it's it's constant study and note cards and memorization and it's different than other languages. Uh, let me just give you an example. One of the things they do in Greek is the endings of words tell you what part it goes in the sentence. So in Greek, they can literally mix the words up in a different order than we would in English. And it's okay because you know that word's possessive because it has an O-U on the end. It's just confusing. And there was this lady in there. Uh, she... She was married, she was taking Greek for fun. Can you you dislike somebody like for and it not be sin? And this teacher, Dr. Clark, he graded on the curve, and she would set the curve every test. It's like she has one class. You know, I've got five classes. She's got one. I've got a job and five classes. She has one class. And she was in the age range where no kids at home. She had literally nothing to do but study Greek. Ugh. I'll never forget the day she leaned over. and She goes, hey, would you like help with that? I'm like, hmm. No, thank you, ma'am. Oh, my goodness sakes. I had some external motivation. It was great. My internal motivation was lacking. I had other things to do. Couldn't see how this was going to help me in the future. When Paul says that Christ's love compels him, that's a drivenness from inside. I'm telling you, there's something different about this. What he's saying is that Christ's love moves him to action. It literally moves him. And what is that about? It's because of what Christ has done, his sacrificial death on the cross, his grace that he extended that we do not deserve, the fact that he gave first so that we could be redeemed. That drove him. Not the external things that the world drives the world, like fame and competition and looks and people seeing how good you do. And In Romans, Paul writes, God clearly shows and proves his own love for us by the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That moved him. It compelled him to move. It compelled him to do the ministry that he did. Jesus said it like this. A person who's been forgiven much loves much. Now, I talked about this two weeks ago when we talked about sin. The fact is, if you don't understand how serious your sin is, you're not going to be as grateful that Christ died for your sin. If we don't think sin is bad, we don't think his sacrifice was that big a deal. On the other hand, as we, com- as we just celebrated communion, hopefully you see how important it is and what he has saved you from, and therefore you feel moved to live for him in a different way. We appreciate what's done. We, we feel moved to share. It makes- it's what makes us crazy. It's crazy love. We're- we're- we love because he loved us. His love makes us crazy. Crazy. We're compelled by his love for us and his sacrifice. And it makes you want to love people like he did. Like he did. I hope... Let me word this carefully. I hope you don't follow him just for the blessings. I hope not. The blessings are good. Following Christ is a blessing. One of the things that always was amazing and wonderful... And sad all at the same time is every time I've taken students on a mission trip to a third world country and we get ready to have them share testimonies, they usually would say something like this. And please just, this is what they would say. I can't believe these people are so happy and they don't have anything. Now that's sad because they, real, they don't realize things aren't what make you happy they say they have such joy they worship god with such abandon and they don't even have homes they have dirt floors or whatever it was the thing is as we realize those aren't the things yes we live in a country that is so blessed we are so wealthy we are so we live in peace i mean we can walk the streets without worry But don't follow him for the blessings. Follow him because he forgave you. Follow him because he saved your soul. Follow him because he loves you with an everlasting love. Follow him because he's repaired the relationship between you and God. And just as he said, he's the only way to God. And he provided the way. Jesus said, "I'm the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." It changes everything. Follow him because he paid the price. I want to throw out you a theology word. It's vicarious substitutionary atonement. Can you work that into a sentence maybe later today? Vicarious substitutionary atonement. All it means is, he was your substitute. He paid the price for you. What you owed, he paid. And just like I mentioned when we, were, when we were talking about communion, he didn't just cover your sin, he took it away. It's gone. I know some of you, maybe it doesn't feel as special because you've been a Christian a long time. That sounds weird, but I'm, it's true. Once you've lived in grace for a long time, you forget how special it is. You know how, You know how it is when you're maybe somewhere and you see your wife and you realize wow, she's beautiful. She's a gift. Can't believe she chose me. You know that feeling I'm talking about? And you rock it back to those moments when you got married. That's what I'm talking about. As Christians, there's times where we get so comfortable in grace, we forget what it's like to be newly saved, to have that freedom of guilt lifted off of you, and you know you have a relationship with the Father. That love should compel you to act and behave in a way that changes everything and makes you look crazy to a fallen world. That makes you look crazy to a world that is all about themselves and I decide what makes me happy and what I feel good about today. That should make you look absolutely insane. Vicarious substitutionary atonement. He took our place, He paid our debt. He fully pays our debt, and it's for everybody. Paul goes on in this verse and chapter of Corinthians. He says, since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. Does that sound familiar? Does it sound like Jesus saying, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me? Because that's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up the cross and follow me daily. The old life is gone. You no longer live for yourself, but instead you live for Christ. The world thinks you're crazy because it's completely, totally, unabashedly countercultural. You're crazy. You Christians are crazy. Why? Why? It's because you're compelled by Christ's love. You're compelled by a love that motivates you from the inside to do things differently. So he goes on in verse 15, or 16. He says, so we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. Stopped evaluating others from a human point of view? Wait, really? You know what that means? Because the human way to do it is, it's my way or the highway. And if you don't agree with me, I cancel you. Right? And it's about me and what I value and what I think is important. And it's about power over and coercing you. It's about the bullying that goes on all the time. Whether it's at school or in the media or wherever. It's about racism. The world is so racist. Why have we done that? Why have we put people in categories by color? Jesus never did that. Ever. In fact the early church what are the things Paul says in Galatians 5:28 there's neither Jew nor Greek slave nor free uh, male nor female. Hmm. It's no longer about class or revenge or us justifying ourselves and saying our sin isn't that bad or I'm better than the next person it doesn't work that way. We don't evaluate people the way the world does. That's why you look crazy. We also don't evaluate Christ like we did before. Because it used to be you'd look at Christ and think he's ultimate crazy. But also you couldn't just say he's a good teacher because that doesn't work. Because good teachers don't say that they're the way, the truth, and the life. And good teachers don't say that you have to follow me. And good teachers don't say you're going to be persecuted because I was persecuted. That's not good. It's also we don't look at the religion. We can't work ourselves better. We can't just brag about how good we are and virtue signal. Isn't it funny how we brag about our humility online? It cracks me up. Verse 17, he says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has become. We're compelled. We are compelled. We are moved by Christ's love to act differently, to act humility, in humility, to serve others. Why else would you do that? Because that's not how the world is. The world is get my own and do what's good for me and the politics in the office. But No. He says, lay down your life for others. He says, pray for those who sin against you. He says, love those who sin against you. It's so radical, so crazy. You know what's cool though? We want to please him with our actions because we're no longer enslaved by sin. Somebody, I think it was Greg Smith worded it this way just a couple weeks ago or last week. He said, good works don't save us, but once we're saved, we want to do good works. Did you catch that little turn? He's a clever dude. Good works don't save us. But once we're saved, we want to do good works. So it can be confusing because you look at a Christian, you think, man, they're crazy. They're trying to earn their way to heaven. Uh Uh-uh. Nope, already got heaven. I'm just so grateful I'm compelled to do good. That's how it works. (laughs) He goes on, he says, and all this is a gift from God who bought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. Catch, see what he did there? Kind of flipped the script on you. See what he did? He said, all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ and God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. Did you know there's a job involved? For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them and he gave us this wonderful message of Reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. <laughs> who is this written to again? Who is this written to? Okay, you're, you're getting ahead. Who was this originally written to? The Corinthian what? The church. Did you know that none of these letters are written to the pastor? Not one. Now, he mentions the leaders of the churches, but they weren't written to the pastors. You know why? Because he intended the church to be this. It's it's easy. I know I get how it is, you know, and I kid around about being a professional Christian all the time. And um, because people have me pray at things, I get it. I, I don't mind. I love it. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that's how it is. But guess what? You're supposed to do this. Remember I said uh, the pastor's job is to equip saints for the works of service? And this letter here is not written to pastors. So that means that you guys are supposed to have the the responsibility of reconciling people. And you are Christ's ambassadors. And why? How did he introduce this whole thing? Because you are compelled by the love of Christ. Christ's love compels us to do this. We are compelled. We are driven because of our gratitude to him for what he's done, because we know how gracious he is to us, because we have found a good thing and we want to share it with everybody else. That because of that, we now are the ambassadors that he is sending. We're all ambassadors. So I have two questions for you and then a call to action. Pastor Nick, if you could join me here. First thing is this. Now, this is personal, but I want to ask you this question. Are you compelled? Do you feel compelled? Not because of what I've said today, but do you feel compelled? Is there a drivenness inside you that's just welling up and you know, I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to live like this. Do you feel that today? Have you been feeling that? And why? Why not? If if you are a Christ follower and you do not feel compelled to, to, to share this, to live like Christ, that's something you need to check in your heart today. But you might, when we pray in a minute here, just ask God to have the Holy Spirit speak to you and like, God, I want that. I want that. I want to be compelled. God, why am I not feeling that? Maybe for you, it might come down to this. Frank mentioned this to me this last week, the idea that if you do not feel contrite and about sin, ask God why. And pray that he would help you feel about sin like he does. Would change everything. Would change everything. My second question is this. Do you need Christ's vicarious substitutionary atonement? We've been pretty clear about what that is today. Obviously the communion and then this sermon. It's right in the scripture over and over. Paul has a knack. You've probably noticed this. If you read enough of him, he repeats his arguments over and over and over and over smart guy. He wants to be clear. Jesus takes our place. You can't do it yourself. He extends that grace and he takes your place. So you may be here today and you may need that. So I'm going to do this. I want to pray with all of you. And then we're going to open this this front altar area for prayer. But I want to pray with all of you first. And then I want to have us pray And what I'd like is for people who come down for prayer, if you would stay and pray for them as they're up here praying. But let's do this. Let's shut your eyes for a second. I know we can all do better as Christians, but I'm just curious. Anybody here just kind of struggling a little bit and you feel like, God, I should be more compelled than I am. Anybody like that? Man, some hands just shot up. Praise the Lord. My second question is, anybody here, you need that vicarious substitutionary atonement for you. You haven't been living for God at all. And you realize that you've done things that are wrong that he died for. And now you want to accept that forgiveness today. And we'll pray with you. Anybody at all. You just raise your hand real quick and we'll pray together. Anybody at all. Okay, I see that hand. I appreciate that honesty. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And as we do, I'd like you all to stand. So as you're standing, those of you who are prepared to help us pray, if you are on our prayer team or board member, pastor, staff, spouse, if you would come on down and be ready to pray with people. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray for those two areas of our life. And we're not done. I have a challenge for you after this. But I want us to take a time and pray. And I want to pray for those two things. If you need prayer for anything, if you need prayer for healing, physical healing, if there's a situation in your life you want someone to stand in prayer with you about, it could be a personal situation. You don't have to share details Unless you want to, could be, um, could be a relationship issue. Whatever it is, if you are that person who raised your hand and you want to follow Christ today, then I want you to come down and please talk to one of these people. But let me lead us all in prayer for this moment, Father. We come before you and reading Paul's letter to the Corinthians. I want to be as compelled as him. God, I want that your love to compel me in every area of my life. And I pray for these who raise their hands wanting more of that, God. I want every reaction I have, every attitude I have, every emotion that comes up. I want my response to problems and response to victories to be compelled by his love. God, I want to be a better ambassador of yours to everybody I come in contact with. Father, I pray for that one who raised their hand here this morning, who said that they want to apply your forgiveness to their life. With them, Lord, I just pray that you would forgive us of what we've done that are wrong, things that we've done that are wrong. God, we are grateful for your sacrifice, and we want to apply that to our lives this morning, right now, in this moment. We ask that you would change us and make us new in the name of Jesus. have a challenge for you this morning you may have heard that be an ambassador of christ and i know any of us who grew up in the assemblies we i was a christ ambassador which used to be the youth ministry basically back then here's my challenge for you here's my challenge i'm going to ask you to, this week to be a farmer here's what i mean by that i think a lot of times in my mind When I talk to somebody, I want that encounter to end with them on their knees, crying, accepting Jesus. But instead, what I'm going to challenge you to do this week is to be a farmer and plant a seed. It may be something as simple as asking a question. It may mean that you offer them a hand somehow in service. It may mean that when they ask you why you're crazy, you just say, I'm a Christian and Jesus changed my life. Simple, one thing. It might be, you know, we're, we're almost at raking season. Might be doing that for a neighbor. It might be for you, you're removing an obstacle to faith. Maybe they have a question that's bothered them about Christianity or about the Bible. And maybe you don't know the answer, but you can tell them, I will find that answer out for you. And we can help you find those answers. It might be you challenging an assumption that they've had about Christianity. It might be this, somebody shares a need or a hurt or, or something with them with you and then you say can I pray with you about that you would be amazed how many people even strangers would are more than willing to have you pray and pray right then and there, it doesn't have to be fancy, just pray it might mean that you invite them to church or invite them to the fall festival simple, little seed planting how many would do that challenge, take it up God it opens an opportunity for you, how many would do that alright almost as many as said that they were still excited about their relationship with their husband and wife. That's awesome. <laughs> God bless you today. Um, we, we do have this chili fundraiser going on. Um, and I hope um, you're blessed today. God bless you.